0: Chapter twelve Part one of the Tree of Appomattox This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit org Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan. The Tree of Appomattox by Joseph A. Altschulder. Chapter twelve in the Cove Part one. General Sheridan permitted the Winchester men to rest a long time, or rather he ordered them to do so. No regiment had distinguished itself more at Cedar Creek or in the previous battles, and it was best for it to lie by a while and recover its physical strength. Strength of spirit had never been lost. It also gave a needed chance to the sixteen slight wounds accumulated by Dick, Pennington, and Warner to heal perfectly something further happened," said Warner, regretfully. "'I wouldn't have a single honorable scar to take back with me and show in Vermont.' "'I'll have one slight, though honorable, scar, <laughs> but I won't be able to show it,' said Pennington, also with regret. "'I trust that it's in the front, Frank,' said Dick. "'It is all right. Don't worry about that. But what about you, Dick?' "'I had hopes of a place on my left arm just above the elbow.' A bullet traveling at the rate of a million miles a minute broke the skin there and took a thin flake of flesh with it, but I'm so terribly healthy it healed up without leaving a trace." "'That is no hope for us,' said Werner, sighing. "'We can never point to the proof of our warlike deeds. You didn't find your cousin among the prisoners.' "'No, nor was he among the fallen whom we buried, nor any of his friends, either.' I'm quite sure that he escaped. My intuition tells me so. It's not your intuition at all, said Warner, reprovingly. It's a reasonable opinion formed in your mind by antecedent conditions. Call it intuition because you don't take the trouble to discover the circumstances that led to its production. It's only lazy minds that fall back upon second sight, mind reading and such things. Isn't he the big word man?" said Pennington, admiringly. I'll tell you what, George. General Earl is still alive somewhere, and we're going to send you to talk him to death. They say he's a splendid swearer, one of the greatest that ever lived, but he won't be able to get out a single cuss with you standing before him and spouting the whole unabridged dictionary to him. At least when I talk I say something, replied Warner, sternly. It seems strange to me, Frank Pennington, that your life on the plains where conditions, for the present at least, are hard and permitted you to have so much frivolity in your nature. It's not frivolity, George. It's a gay and bright spirit, in the rays of which you may bask without price. It will do you good. Say, do you know what will be our next duty? No, I don't, and I'm not going to bother about it. I'll leave that to directly to Colonel Winchester and indirectly to General Sheridan. When you rest, put your mind at rest. Concentration on whatever you are doing is the secret of continued success." They were lying on blankets near the foot of a mountain, and the time was late October. The days were growing cold and the nights colder, but a fine big fire was blazing before them, and they rejoiced in the warmth and the brightness from the flames and the heaps of glowing coals. I'll venture this prediction," said Pennington, that our next march is not against an army but against guerrillas. They say that up there in the Allegheny, Slade, and Skelly are doing a lot of harm. They may have to be hunted out, and the Winchester men have the best reputation in the army for that sort of work. We earned it by our work against these very fellows in Tennessee. For which most of the credit is due to Sergeant Whitley, said Dick. He's a grand trailer, and he can lead us with certainty when other regiments can't find the way. Dick gazed westward beyond the dim blue line of the Alleghanies, and he knew that he would feel no surprise if Pennington's prediction should come true. The nest of difficult mountains was a good shelter for outlaws, and the Winchesters, with their sergeant picking up the trail, were the very men to hunt him down. He knew that too, Unless the task was begin soon. It would prove a supreme test of endurance, and there would be dangers in plenty. Snow would be falling before long on the mountains, and they would become a frozen wilderness, almost as wild and savage as they were before the white man came. But it seemed for a while that the intuition of both Dick and Pennington had failed. They spent many days in the valley trying to catch the evasive Mosby and his men. Although they had little success, Mosby rangers knew the country thoroughly and made many daring raids, although they could not become a serious menace. When they returned through Winchester from the last of these expeditions, the Winchester men were wrapped in heavy army cloaks for the wind from the mountains could cut through their uniforms alone. Dick, glancing toward the Allegheny, saw a ribbon of white above their blue line. "'Look, fellows," the first snow,' he said. "'I see,' said Warner. "'It snows on just and unjust, the unjust beings Laid and Skelly who are surely up there.' "'Just before we went out,' said Pennington, "'the news of some fresh and special atrocities of theirs came in. "'I'm thinking the time is near when we'll be sent after them.' We'll need snowshoes, said Warner. Shivering as he looked, I can see that the snow is increasing. Which way's the wind blowing, Dick? Toward sure us. And we're likely to get a little of that snow. The clouds will blow off the mountains and sprinkle us with flakes in the valley. I like winter in peace, but not in war, said Pennington. It makes campaigning hard. It's no fun marching at night in a driving snowstorm or hail. "'But what we can help we must stand,' said Werner with resignation. Both predictions, the one about the snow and the other concerning the duties that would be assigned to them, quickly came to pass. Before sunset, the blue line of the Alleghanies was wholly lost in mist and vapor. The great flakes began to fall on the camp, and the young officers were glad to find refuge in their tents. It was not a heavy snowfall where they were, but it blew down at in intervals all through the night, and the next morning it lay upon the ground to the depth of an inch or so. Then the second part of the prophecy was justified. Colonel Winchester himself, round all his staff and heads of companies, a fine crisp winter morning for us to take a ride, he said cheerfully. General Sheridan has become vexed beyond endurance over the doings of Slade and Skelly. And he has chosen his best band of gorilla hunters to seek em out in their lairs and annihilate em. Oh, I knew it, groaned Pennington, in an undertone to Dick. I was as certain of it as I had read the order already. But aloud he said, as he saluted, we're glad we're chosen for the honor, sir. I speak for mister Mason, Mr Warner, and myself. Ha! I'm glad you're thankful, laughed the colonel. A grateful and resolute heart always prepares one for hardships. We'll have plenty of them over there in the high mountains, where the snow lies deep. But we have new horses, furnished especially for this expedition. And Sergeant Whitley and Mr. Shepherd will guide us. The sergeant can hear or see anything within a quarter of a mile of him. And Mr. Shepherd, being a native of the valley, knows also all the mountains that close in it. Young lieutenants were sincerely glad the sergeant and shepherd were to go along, as with them they felt comparatively safe from ambush. Danger to be dreaded where Slade and Skelly were concerned. We agree that General Sheridan was worth ten thousand men, said Warner, and I believe that the Battle of Cedar Creek proved it. Now if Sheraton is worth ten thousand, the sergeant and shepherd are certainly worth a thousand each. It's a simple algebraic problem which I could demonstrate to you by the liberal use of X and Y, but in your case it's not necessary. You must accept my word for it." "'We'll do it. We'll do it. Say no more,' exclaimed Pennington hastily. It was a splendid column of men that rode out from the Union camp, and General Sheridan himself saw them off. Colonel Winchester at their head was a man of fine face and figure and he had never looked more martial. The hardships of war had left no mark upon him. His face was tanned, a deep red, by the winds of summer and winter. And although a year or two over forty, he seemed to be several years less. Behind him came Dick Pennington and Warner, hardy and well-knit. Who had passed through the most terrible of all schools, three and a half years of incessant war, and who, although youth were nevertheless stronger and more resourceful than most men near them rode the sergeant, happy in his capacity as scout and guide, and welcoming the responsibility that he knew would be his as soon as they reached the mountains. Looming so near and white, he felt as if he were back upon the plains, leading a troop in a great blizzard and guarding it with eye and ear and all his five senses against Sioux or Cheyenne ambush. He was not a mere trainer of a squad of men. He was, in a real sense, a leader of an army. Shepard, the spy, also felt a great uplift of spirits. He was a man of high ideals, whose real nature the people about him were just beginning to learn. He didn't like his trade of a spy, but being aware that he was particularly fitted for it, intense patriotism caused him to accept its duties. Now he felt that most of his work in such a capacity was over. He could freely ride with the other men and fight openly as they did. if emergency demanded that he renew his secret service, he would do so instantly and without hesitation. Colonel Winchester looked back with pride at his column. Like most of the regiments at that period of the war, it was small—three hundred sinewy, well-mounted young men who had endured every kind of hardship and who could endure the like again. All of them were wrapped in heavy overcoats over their uniforms, and they rode the best of horses, animals that Colonel Winchester had been allowed to choose. The colonel felt so good that he took over his little silver whistle and blew it up in a mellow hunting call. The column broke into a trot, and the snow flew behind the beating hoofs in a long white trail. Spontaneously, the men burst into a cheer, and the cold wind blowing past them merely whipped their blood into high exaltation. But as they rode across the valley, Dick could not help feeling some depression over its ruin and desolate appearance worse now in winter than in summer no friendly smoke arose from any chimney there were no horses nor cattle in the fields the rails of the fences had gone long since to make fires for soldiers and the roads rutted deep by the rains had been untouched silence and loneliness were supreme everywhere He was glad when they left it all behind and entered the mountains through a pass fairly broad and sufficient for horsemen. He did not feel so much oppression there. It was natural for mountains to be lonely and silent also, particularly in winter, and his spirits rose again as they rode between the white ridges. At the entrance to the pass a mountaineer named Reed met them. It was he who brought the news of the latest exploit of Slade and Skelly. But he had to return quickly to warn some friends of his in the foothills and was back again in time to meet the soldiers. He was a long, thin man of middle age, riding a large black mule. An immense gray shawl was pinned about his shoulders, and woolen leggings came high over his trousers. As he talked much, he chewed tobacco vigorously. But Dick saw at once that, like many of the mountaineers, he was a shrewd man, and, despite lack of education, was able to look, see, and judge. Reed glanced over the column, showed his teeth yellowed by the constant use of tobacco, and the glint of a smile appeared in his eyes. Look like good men. I couldn't have picked em better myself, Colonel, he said with the easy familiarity of the hills. Oh, they've been in many battles, and they've never failed, said the Colonel with some pride. You'll have to do something more'n fight up thar on the high ridges," said the mountaineer, showing his yellow teeth again. "You'll have to look out for traps, snares, and ambushes. Blade and Kelly ain't soldiers that come out and fight far and square in the open. No siree, they're rattlesnakes. A pair of 'em a full of poison. We got to find our rattlesnakes and catch 'em. If we don't, they'll be stinging just the same after you're gone." That's just the way I look at it, Mr. Reed. Sergeant Whitley here is a specialist in rattlesnakes. He used to hunt em down and kill the big bloated ones on the plains. And even the snow won't keep him from tracing em down to their dens here in the mountains. Reed, after the custom of his kind, looked the sergeant up and down with a frank stare. appears to be a good man, he said, hefty in build and quick eye. Glad to know you, Mr. Whitley. You and me, and me take part in a shooting be together, and this old long barreled firearm mine kin gave a good account of herself. He patted his rifle affectionately. A weapon of ancient type with a long, slender steel blue barrel, and a heavy carved stock. It was just such a rifle as the frontiersman used. Dick's mind, in an instant, travelled back into the wilderness, and he was once more with the great hunters and scouts who fought for fair land of kane tucky his imagination was so vivid that it required only a touch to stir it to life and the aspect of the mountains wild and lonely and clothed in snow heightened the illusion i suppose from what you tell us that we'll have a chance to use it mr reed said the sergeant i reckon so replied the mountaineer emphatically about five miles up this pass you'll come to a cove in which jim johnson's house stood some of them, them guerrillas attacked it three nights ago. Jim held them off with his double-barreled shotgun till his wife and children could get out the back door. Then he skedaddled himself. Oh, they, they plundered the house of everything worth carrying off, and then they burned it plumb to the ground. Jim and his people nearly froze to death on the mountain, but they got at least to the cabin of some of their kin. or they are now then they carried off all the horses and cattle and the kind to find a valley and besides robbing everybody they shot some good men there's surely a good dose of lead comin to every feller in that band the mountaineer's face for a moment contracted violently dick saw that he was fairly burning for revenge among his people the code of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth still prevailed unquestioned and there would be no pity for the gorillas who might come under the muzzle of his rifle. But his feelings were shown only for the moment. In another instant, he was stoic like the Indians whom he had displaced. After a little silence, he added, That man Slade, who is the brains of the outfit, is plumb devil. But For his doings in the mountains are concerned, he ain't human at all. He has no mercy for nothing at no time. Words found an echo in Dick's own mind. He remembered how venomously Slade had hunted for his own life in the southern marshes, and chance, since then, had brought them into opposition more than once. Just as Harry had felt that there was a long contest between Shepherd and himself, Dick felt that Slade and he were now to be pitted in a long and mortal combat. Shepherd was a patriot, while Slade was a demon. If ever a man was. If he were to have a particular enemy, he was willing that it should be slayed, as he could see in him no redeeming qualities that would cause him to stay his hand if his own chances came. Have you any idea where the guerrillas are camped now?" asked Colonel Winchester. When we last heard of them, they was in Burton Cove, replied the mountaineer. Though of course they might have moved since then. Still, the snow may have held them up, It's laying right deep in the mountains, and even the gorillas ain't so anxious to plow that way through it. How long will it take us to reach Burton's Cove? It's just to ease the weather, says Colonel. If the snow holds off, we might make it tomorrow for dark. But if the snow makes up its mind to come tumbling down again, then it's day after that, for sure. At any rate, another fall of snow is no harder for us than it is for them, said the Colonel. Who showed the spirit of a true leader now mystery do you think you can find anybody on this road who will tell us where the band has gone it ain't much of a road there ain't many people to ride on it in the best of times so i reckon our chances of meeting a traveler who knows much is just about as good as our chances of finding a peck of gold in the next snowdrift which means there's no chance at all i reckon that's about the size of it but, Colonel, we don't have to look to the road for the word. What do you mean? Well, turn your eyes upward to the mountain heights. Some of us who are just bound to save the Union are sitting on top of high ridges where that poison band can't get Waiting Waitin' to tell us what we ought to know. They got some homemade flags, and they'll wave to me. Mr. Reed, you're a man of foresight and perception. Foresight? I know what that is. It's the opposite of hindsight, but I ain't made the acquaintance of uh, perception. Perception is what you see after you think, and I know that you're a man who thinks. Thank you, Colonel, but I reckon that in such a war as this, there's a man has just got to sit right plumb down and think sometimes. It's naturally forced upon him. Them that starts a war maybe don't do much thinking, but them that fights it have to do a power of it. Well, your logic is sound mr reed i've a powerful good eye colonel and i think i see a man on the top of that high ridge to the right my eyes ain't as good as your glasses and would you mind taking a look through them follow a line from that little bunch of cedars to the crest yes that's a man i can see him quite plainly he has a big gray shawl like your own wrapped about his shoulders perhaps he's one of your friends i reckon so but since he ain't makin no signs he ain't got nothin to tell it was agreed that them that didn't know nothin was to keep it to themselves well we rode on until we came to them that did saves time now he's gone ain't he colonel yes something has come in between it's the first thin edge of the mist them clouds out thar in the northwest floatin over the mountains i'm sorry colonel but more snow is a-comin Signs too plain. Look through the gap and see what big brown clouds are sailing up. They're just chock full of millions and millions and millions of tons of snow. You know your own country and its winter ways, Mr. Reed. How long will it be before the snow comes? Let me your glasses a minute, Colonel. He examined the clouds a long time through the powerful lenses, and when he handed them back, he replied, Them clouds are moving up in a hurry, Colonel. They have saws right here, riding into the mountains and want to pour their snow down on us afore we get where we want to go colonel winchester looked anxious i don't like it he said it doesn't suit cavalry to be plunging around in snowdrifts you're right colonel deep snow is sorely hard on horses. it looks as if we're holed up how them clouds are a-trotting across the sky here comes the first flakes, and they look as big as feathers colonel anxiety deep and turning rapidly to alarm He spoke of being holed up mr Reed. what do you mean by it he asked Sit in the snow i know a place colonel that we can reach and what war we can stay and the snow gets too deep for us these mountains are full of little valleys and coves you know they say the alleghanies run more than a thousand miles one way, and maybe three hundred or so another i reckon that when the lord made em And he looked at his job. He wondered how he was going to have people live in such a mess of mountains. His fingers and pressed them down in the ground lots of times. And he made all sorts of purity valleys and ravines through which the rivers and creeks and branches could run. And snug little coves in which men could build their cabins and be sheltered by the big cliffs above on the forest hanging them. I reckon that he favored us up here because the mountains just suit me. Nothing on earth could drive me out of them. He looked up the lofty ridges hidden now, and then by the whirling snow his eyes glistened. It was a stern and wild scene, but he knew that it made a snug cove and the logging cabins all the snugger. Flakes were increasing now, and an evil wind was driving them hard in the men's faces. The wind as it came through the gorges had many voices, too, howling and shrieking in wrath. The young troopers were devoutly grateful for the heavy overcoats and gloves with which their thoughtful general had provided them. But there was one man in the regiment to whom wind and snow brought a certain pleasure. It was Sergeant Whitley, back to earlier days. He was riding once more with his command over the Great Plains, and the foes they sought were a Cheyenne or Subban. Here they needed him and his wilderness lore. And he felt that a full use for them all would come. End of Chapter Twelve, Part One. Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan.